A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes and whatnot. This month, we're talking about Brandon Sanderson's Secret Project 3, You Mean the Nightmare Painter, and we will undoubtedly touch on nearly everything up through the lost metal, including Tress, basically everything Cosmere, except for Stormlight. Nothing serious in regards to the Stormlight Archive. Welcome to Words and Whiskey Short Pours, a monthly podcast where we have a fun time discussing fictional worlds and the people that create them, all while boozing just a little bit. My name is Cross. My name is PJ. And we are here today to talk about Brandon Sanderson's Yumi and the Nightmare Painter. It's so fun. I'm so excited. So, I am the one that is forcing you to not talk about Stormlight. (laughs) So yeah. if you were excited about some Stormlight connections, I'm sorry. I haven't read it yet, but I will. And then we'll, well probably address them. What's what's interesting is I'm going to ask questions about it because there's uh, oh, some. Okay. There are things and I'm curious if they worked for you or didn't without the knowledge. So there's there's like a couple of descriptions and things like that. So that's why I said we're really not going to talk about the spoilers necessary necessarily. But there are some things that are mentioned a couple of times. And so I kind of wanted to just kind of like poke and see what you thought without knowing what they are. So sounds good to me. But since we're doing this as a morning, so it's 9 a.m. eight thirty depending or 9 30 or 8 30 we aren't drinking anything today but pj what are what beverage are you enjoying this morning water you I, ha- I just have loser. regular old water <laughs> what do you have i mean to be fair me too i have a cup of coffee it's great it's a <clears throat> it's my light bringer roast ah <laughs> uh, good <laughs> how is it uh, is it great. at least good coffee Oh, it's great coffee. Oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also got some stickers from them. Very funny story. We'll tell it a different time. But uh, yeah, enjoying enjoying some nice pour over this morning. And it's excellent. I really enjoy it. So, all right. I'd love to just jump into this because there's a lot to talk about inside of this book. But PJ, what were your overall thoughts on You, Me, and the Nightmare Painter? Overall thoughts were great. I, You know how much I love Tress. Mm-hmm. And this fit right in there with me or with it. So I, I don't know yet. I haven't chewed it enough to really decide which one I like better. But I really love both of them. What were some of your favorite elements? Like what, what really worked for you? I think the... So so it's what he talks about in the postscript in that mm-hmm. he wanted something that tackles more of the mundane jobs of a fantasy world that only exist because it's a fantasy world. Mm -hmm. And this captures that super, super well. And before reading that postscript, I, I thought about it as sort of fantasy mundane people and their interactions with the, with the world and magic at large and how it being just a normal part of life molds those people so i I think that was a big part of it you and i talked a lot about how these these smaller stories these one-offs aren't really focusing on somebody who's a like superhero within this world and like a super wielder of the magic on, on the world and it's refreshing it's light it's fun 
and there's not a large chunk of anything that I have to balance or juggle as much as I love doing that and like really immersing myself in the magic systems. It's nice sometimes to have a reprieve from it. Yeah, this is in, in regards to that, and we'll definitely get more specific once we get into kind of the meat of this, but a totally agree. I, I have a, I have a tough time rating this against stress. I think that I do like this one more as I've sat with it since I've finished it, but that really gets into the fact that I have a couple of gripes with stress of things that like really still kind of bug me a little bit about it, which I think is why I like this one is because there's not that much. And again, bugs me about it. It's still like an 8.5, a 9 in my head, right? But this is like a 9.5 with one pretty serious gripe um, with the with the whole story. But that's that's it. There's like one chapter <laughs> that I've got issues with. But overall, I, I really enjoyed this one. Um, and I, I do think that he very expertly and deftly weaves in the magic in interesting ways and all of the various romantic theory and explanations without ever feeling heavy handed this. And I I've talked, we talked a little bit about this in reference to the lost metal, but this brings up kind of my feelings about rhythm of war too. It's hard not to, but the most recent final books in the sequences so far have felt a little bit more directed to a point to get us to plot beats to make certain things happen that don't necessarily serve the characters as well, like most of the Lost Metals ending. And while that is still good and engaging because we get the right plot things, it doesn't feel real. Wherein this had, I would say, almost no plot. Like, it is, this is a character story for 60% of it, 50% of it, it's crazy. Like, you're just, you're living in a different world for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's and great. for good reason, it, it feels yeah. without direction because that's they don't know what the, fuck the scenario do. the characters have been thrown into. So, yeah. it, it, it's, oh, yeah. it's well done and makes sense and doesn't <clears throat> feel, doesn't feel pointless while... No, 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 no not having a direction yeah that was definitely i was definitely not trying to suggest that it feels pointless in any regard for the record it it was a good thing that he could keep us on the string with just the faintest of mystery of what's what's going on why why they switch bodies right like and that's what really is kind of keeping us there and it's just it's well executed i again no gripes i could have read another 400 pages of this very easily Mm mm-hmm and I wouldn't have minded at all. Okay, cool. Lots to talk about in this story, though. So I want us to go into this. Do you want to read the summary? Sure. Yumi comes from a land of gardens, meditation, and spirits, while Painter lives in a world of darkness, technology, and nightmares. While their lives suddenly become intertwined in strange ways, they can, can they put aside their differences and work together to uncover the mysteries of their situation and save each other's communities from certain disaster? Yeah. So really love the premise. We've talked quite a bit about that. I want to start on a little bit of a different note. Generally, I would start with characters, but we do kind of get introduced rather quickly to the concept of this world being that the shard of virtuosity has been broken and splintered on Mm -hmm. our in our little system here. I can't remember if it's at the beginning or the end that we learn that it's all called UTOL is the name of the system, but. Regardless, you know, the UTOL system is, and we're dealing with the chart of virtuosity, which is virtuoso, not virtue or 
mm-hmm. and whatnot. Before we, sorry, I, I should have cut you off sooner, but we've talked a lot about these little summaries in specifically like TV shows and movies and stuff. This is so much better written than, than some of those. Yeah, we've we've had some really <laughs> some really heinous ones, especially for some of the TV episodes that we talked about. This one is well composed, and I think I sniped it from Sanderson's own description. So yeah, that, that makes sense from Dragon Steel. So, but but the shard uh, virtuoso virtuosity. Mm-hmm. I was trying to make a connection to virtue the whole time. Mm. <laughs> so I didn't. I didn't really get there. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, to be fair, I think that's what Sanderson had feared. Uh, I remember reading somewhere, you know, because after I'm done, I, I totally open up the, the floodgates as far as consuming stuff relating to this goes. I had read somewhere that he was concerned about that, which is why he clarified specifically or tried to make that very clear that it was virtuoso and that it feed, fed into art as opposed to you know but at the same like art is a virtue like I don't know. it still kind of works but yeah so i just find it interesting personally that the this shard of which is a new shard that has not been talked about in any of the other books also is the shard of art right this sort of creative shard and it imploded which is sad mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of artists oops it's kind of i don't know it was an interesting side note instead of the whole thing i was like oh god like that's kind of dark but um, i mean there there are some pretty clear real world strings to pull on for for that i think i think we'll get oh. to it quite a bit but oh yeah i part of so I think before we get into some of the specifics, one of the things that I did want to talk about with the story on the whole is sort of another kind of summary thing. But there's an interesting conversation that goes on here about obviously art and the process of making art and the like refining of ability that we see between Yumi and Painter and like their capabilities. But it's it's tough to not also see this as kind of a commentary on in some ways of the fandom not necessarily immediately of sanderson and and by this i i don't mean like commenting on the fandom itself and in any kind of negative context more that the fandom has commented that sanderson is like a machine in the way that he turns these things out and it's interesting that the villain of this is very literally a machine that turns these things out and that that isn't necessarily art right and i think that this is kind of his rebuttal of being like well no you know that's not that's not how this actually works Mm mm-hmm I I just found that concept interesting. Yeah. From like a meta text level. Yeah. It's at a certain point, like, I wonder how much of it is self-reflection. Like, am I, am I turning these out too much? And is that a bad thing? And I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think he just writes really fast. Like there, there are, there's so much intention through all of this. And I think that's, that's one of the, main points is the human intention that goes into the piece of work as opposed to just lifeless right and i i would also point to that sort of quasi ridiculous wired story that came out earlier this year i think it was wired i never actually read it i just saw people talking about better to not and i (laughs) i really i hate the idea of of throwing them any sort of readership in the moment for that in particular story but it's 
reminded me in the moments of some of the points of criticism that the guy was levying against Sanderson. And this, despite being written a year and a half prior to even the interviews starting for that, it feels like a natural rebuttal to that. Like, no, I'm a person. I'm an artist. I, I work just as hard as anyone else does. You know, I do. He does write remarkably fast, but that doesn't change the, the skill or talent that he has. Um, and just from a meta perspective, I, I think I really appreciated that sort of commentary of no, I'm a real person because <laughs> <laughs> there's I, I see a lot of Sanderson in painter or Sanderson using painter to talk about himself a little bit more. So which is. I think unique because he often does not self insert. That's one of his big things is he tries really hard not to, but it's hard not to see it when you're talking about art and creation and you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I could totally see both of them being like different subsections of himself, both painter and Yumi sort of the, the rigidity and the structure of, and the, the, the process that she goes through every day. Mm-hmm. I haven't read up on his his writing process. I know there are many philosophies mm-hmm. around that, but to put out as much as he does, I can only imagine that he has some sort of like process that he follows. He's got kind of a weird day, as he's described it. He is a night owl, like truly a night owl. In ways that we were maybe at like 18 <laughs> and mm-hmm. he's doing that as an adult, which I mean, works for him. Right. But I, I want to say and it's all available. He's talked about it often, um, but he stays up late to write, uh, spends a lot of time with his family in the evening and then either and typically then winds down with like a video game afterwards going to bed around like four in the morning. So something like that. Wakes up at like noon. Gets in a workout, gets in breakfast, stuff like that. Anyway, it, it was a, it was an interesting, interesting to see. With that, talking about rigidity in our characters, I would love to open up and start there. What do you think of Yumi and Nikoro, our painter? That's a, that's a large question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I felt like there was a lot of like, even though there's very serious elements to the story, there's a lot of levity. And a lot more comedy throughout this story than I think most of the others that I've read from him, other than maybe Frugal Wizard that might have more directly comedic bits to it. But this. I mean, Tress was pretty funny because of Hoyd's narration, right? That's true. And like that is, that is, again, our narrator here. Mm-hmm. That's a good As a point. coat rack. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So. But it is funny. I would agree. Like. <laughs> I don't disagree. I did. I don't disagree with a thing that you said outside of like, well, don't forget Tress. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just I, I feel like we got so well immersed into their personalities very quickly. And they're obviously a, a little bit of what would you call them? Not a conglomerate, but a shit. They're, they're representative of two opposing styles of creation and um, mm. personifying and, them. Yeah, fair point. Also, the book is beautiful. I haven't I, gotten it yet. I think I get it tomorrow. Oh, God. It's so pretty. It's so... The art is incredible. I just love it. Mm-hmm. I, I did end up... I hit a certain point right around chapter 30 
where I switched from audiobook to physically reading it because I wanted to go faster. I was like, no, I need to, I need to, I need to go. Michael Kramer, I love you, but you're too slow. Yeah. <laughs> Kate Reddick. It was definitely a 2X book. <laughs> yeah. I, I hate, I hate running Kramer that fast. I just, I, I don't like it in general that much because then I, I lose the focus on language. And instead, I'm just like, I'm listening to the story then. And I like, I like, like picking out sentence structures and things like that while I'm listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I need to go faster. So I, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, alt, alternate problem and i love them and they s- spoiler quasi spoiler i guess not really but michael kramer and kate redding do the stormlight archive because there are female pov characters and so kate redding you know they're married you don't mm-hmm. know but they are married they're a married couple of audiobook narrators and so having them here is great my one qualm whenever they're together is that Kate Redding reads like a normal paced person. Michael Kramer <laughs> reads slower. And so I almost feel like every time the POV shifts that I have to change the speed <laughs> because <laughs> Kramer, I listen to very quickly. Redding, I typically slow down because I think she delivers well. It's it's a weird problem, but mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. The other weird problem that comes in and having both of them here is that there's a shared narrator mm-hmm. and I think Michael does Hoyd better than Kate does. I'll just yeah, pre- that's fair. Throw out my preference there, but it, it's just trying to. I don't know. It it threw me off a couple times for some reason. Yeah, I I think that there was almost a interestingly enough. I feel like there was almost a warm up period in this book with Kate's Hoyd within the first couple of chapters, and then it got better. Like the the voice was found, and then kind of ran with if that Mm -hmm. makes sense yeah and i i went and i read because i had the physical copy you know at a certain point i went back and read the early chapters physically just to see if it was maybe a writing thing and i do think in this case it was a performance thing i think it worked fine i mean it wasn't that big of a deal but it's natural to compare the two when they're right next to each other (laughs) exactly yeah Yeah. Uh, i can't remember where we were at Back to you, me and painters. So you were saying the dichotomy of their strict artistic skills, right? And sort of the interpretation of how they do things. Yeah. And where, that bleeds into like their personal lives and sort of the order versus chaos of how their rooms are set up. Yumi's being very strictly organized, not really by her choice, I'd say totally, but yeah. the, the, meticulousness and the methodology and the routine that she has versus painters. Yeah. I totally meant to fold those clothes that are in a giant pile (laughs) on the floor (laughs) Mm -hmm. and noodle boxes everywhere. And yeah, just order versus chaos, I think encompasses a lot of their personality sort of differences. I, I totally agree with you, and I, I really like it. I'm going to throw like just a little curveball at you in regards to this. So we learn at the very end that Yumi's been living like the same day forever, like Groundhog Day, basically. <laughs> so it's so interesting because is, I mean, obviously, like the whole the whole system that's kept her in place is is one of order to like keep it going, to keep the machine fed. But at the same time, you, you know, it's like, is she actually orderly or was that just forced upon her? I think I think it's somewhere in between. But. All right. So that's nature versus nurture then. 
Right. Like she hasn't had the opportunity from birth to decide anything for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just gotten really, really good at stacking rocks because she hasn't had a choice not to. <laughs> oh man. I, I love, yeah, right. Right. And I, I love the stacking rocks detail of it all inside of the story. I, I don't believe, well, I guess I'll, I'll let you, you say, but I, the moment that the concept came out from Yumi's perspective of like summoning the spirits by stacking rocks, my brain went, Yumi is really similar to Yuna from Final Fantasy X. And then they were describing the dress and I'm like, I kind of imagine it the same. And it just kind of all like spiraled in that direction of like, is this just Final Fantasy X for a second <laughs> from from her perspective? Because in in the game, similarly, Yuna is kind of dealing with the spirits and one of the main characters, and it was it's interesting. This is kind of a, a mishmash of two different stories, of course. Like Sanderson said at the end, in addition to a lot of his own things that he tucked in there. But I was glad when I hit the acknowledgments to be like, yes, I did nail the Final Fantasy X comparison at the very I, least. Do you want me to read exactly what you sent me about that? Uh, halfway yeah, sure. through the book oh god where uh, it's gonna be a little farther away it was something along the lines of if this isn't final fantasy 10 i'll eat my hat do you remember saying <laughs> that this isn't yeah i do <laughs> that's funny yeah here here it, we go it shares a lot of similarities <laughs> god damn it maybe it's not that important oh it's here kind of yeah maybe a bit if not like Final Fantasy X in particular, if Yumi isn't inspired by Yuna, he's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel very strongly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is which I did I did feel a lot of validation at the end when we when we hit that because I was like, yes, absolutely, um, makes so much sense. And for me, you know, in a similar way to him describing it as one of his favorite video games, if not his favorite video game of all time. It was a very formative video game for me. It was my first Final Fantasy game that I played and absolutely shaped my opinion on on RPGs in general and like what I like. So I loved it. Yeah. But I like that added layer and it, it also plays into the sort of, oh, this is for the very specific person of whom has played this, but the way that you do also have two professionals working in their in their career in the game where Titus is this guy of whom is basically a spirit who was a professional sports ball player and is that like pro athlete kind of shoved into a different world. And then you've got Yuna of whom is a, she handles spirits basically, but I don't know. Spirit it's good. It's really great. Yeah. <clears throat> really great. The stone stacking itself, I thought was awesome. You know, at first I kind of tilted my head at it and I was like, interesting, but then made it work, man. And that's impressive in and of itself. Like totally pulled it all together. Made sense of it. Really love that. And then moving over to painter, since we've, we've talked a lot about Yumi, Nikoro, what did you think of sort of the painting as, as a magic system for dealing with these nightmares? I thought right away, like immediately, I'm like, okay, painting is a good way to focus this, but I don't think they need to be painting. And that got like, just knowing how the sort of investiture and that system works in general, Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, 
it's about intention and focus and channeling it into something. I wonder if we'll see other nightmare artists in some way, but we just saw painting. Yeah, I I had a similar thought too along the lines of like there's got to be another way to do this and that painting just kind of ended up being the thing, which specifically makes sense in a great way with the way that the story itself ends because you can actually physically manifest these things as the people that they were. So that was interesting. Speaking of the end for just half a second, I don't want to focus on it too hard, but obviously we paint out all of the nightmares as the people and then they fade away, finally released from their, you know, 760 year torment or whatever. <laughs> so all the painters are out of jobs now, right? Because the nightmares don't exist anymore. Like the whole economy just got up. Yeah, day. just fucked yeah. everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Yeah. All those people... No. <laughs> Dreamwatch doesn't need to exist. I mean, Dreamwatch sucks. We'll get there too. But <laughs> yeah, I, I think they're going to be the first ones to get placed with more jobs, though. Yeah, fuckers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. I really want to talk about the Void Watch, but um, I loved Painter. I thought that he was a great character. I thought that he embodied that sort of, you know, like trying to chase the path of an artist, but then becoming very disillusioned with the idea on the whole. From whatever whatever forces it turns out in this case that they were it was mostly self-inflicted which i think is also an interesting thing to talk about with his character yeah the one part of his character that's pretty important and gets resolved but i don't like really how was the big lie that he told to his friends and there really isn't a resolution to it he admits that like it, it, I, I think a big commentary on depression in general, mm -hmm. but I don't understand how that resolves for everybody else. I feel like the the point that was trying to be made there was that I think it, a I think it does resolve for everybody else. I think that they they apologize or they accept they accept that and say that it might not be the same at first, but they kind of like give him the grace to like give the procession right to like do the thing and he tells akane in that moment that if what he says about the stable nightmare isn't true then he will go and get help um that's fair. which i i think was a, a great and like that conversation is taken very seriously that's one of the things that i really appreciated about this in general is sort of the severity with which he was still treated and like also the way that they are his friends and while they maybe haven't been as close of friends for a long time they still cared for his well-being mm -hmm. in okay. that regard yeah i think you convinced me on that like it's again not perfect i think that if anything to me with this book the end is a little rushed um which is my kind of complaint on the whole uh only complaint of of the story really but but that's um, okay Right. It's got it. Speaking of the the friends, I would love to get in and talk about them a little bit. We've got a lot of characters over the course of the story. We've got Hoyd, we've got Design, we've got Leon, we've got Akane, we've got Tojin, we've got Masuka, we've got Izzy, we've got the Oh god, what's her name? Was it Was it Masuka that was made of all the the yeah, things? Yeah, that was Masuka. Okay. Yeah. I I forgot if that was um, Then there's the attendants. 
Yes, um, the attendants. For some I reason, I thought Moscow was an attendant in my head. I was getting that mixed up, but... Okay. What'd you make of all of our side characters, our extra characters? We can kind of go through them and whatever. All of them are unique and fun and great to interact with. Obviously, design is someone I want to spend more time with. (laughs) Kane is sweet and caring and intelligent, focused. Tojin fucking hilarious <laughs> and oblivious sometimes one so i know we were talking about humor earlier he was the one that didn't work for me he is the only character in the whole story that just read as a little too much yeah just too much meathead too much meathead <laughs> just just a little like being a meathead is fine, and I did I did like his contributions, but I, I think that there was some weightlifting metaphor in there that made me want to eat my keyboard. I like I remember stopping in the moment, rewinding the audiobook and going, Really? Was that the best that we could come up with in the moment? <laughs> it mm-hmm. just it almost felt dad jokey. I I don't remember what it was, but it was it was comparing like lifting sets to something. And yeah. I was like, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I did appreciate the like flirting with the idea that it's all for like sexual vanity and mm-hmm. completely like obliterates that idea when the other meat. Oh, yeah, come I love that. But yeah, yeah, that making that connection was a little much. Yeah. Again. I really don't. It's really not a gripe. I really like Toji and I think he's a great character. But there were a couple of moments where I like I physically cringed at that. <laughs> and like, it's OK. Like there's there's good cringe of like, oh, God, that's embarrassing. And then there there was cringe of like, that's really that's really how we wrote that. That's really how we presented that idea. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. it was fine. The, the what was it? The drama scopes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Drama scope, so such a stupid. funny idea. Yeah. <laughs> and when when Painter gives that specific date to Yumi as her birthday, <laughs> because he knows that it's a good drama scope, and it's going to be contentious. That was one of my favorite little bits of that whole thing. I picked it out, and I was like, oh, God, so smart. Good work. Mm-hmm. And also just shows how much Painter cares about his friends and like what they think. Yeah. I did like that date system, too. Mm-hmm. I feel like you don't get a ton of obviously heavily pulled from like the Chinese calendar, but the years and the months and the date system being so different from the like calendars that we're used to grounded us, I think, a little bit in this fantasy world to a certain degree. Yeah. 11 day weeks, right? Or something like that. Something like that. I feel like that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because, I mean, it's a planet. Speaking of, I want to get back to the characters, but I just thought about the planet and now we have to talk about it. The fact that these two planets are so close to each other and then there's obviously the the star. There's the giant hole in the sky. Mm-hmm. What would you make of the the world construction on the hole? Yeah, the planets are in orbit with each other. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not Yumi's planet, of course, but... no. That, but we thought it was. When did you stop thinking it was? I didn't think it was. 
right away? Right away, because he had no reason to, like, there there was no reasoning behind it other than, yeah, I can see that star, so that's where you're from. I think, you know, A, fuck you. (laughs) B... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think it made it was it was a good enough misdirection. You know what I mean? Like it was like, okay, that would be a little obvious, but I'll go along with it for now and I'll I'll see where you're going. And then, you know, it kind of fell out of the back of my head until it was actually presented. Like you know. I don't know how that's possible because he keeps mentioning it. Well, I mean like it fell out of the back of my head like I didn't question it. Okay. Gotcha. Like, I was just like, oh, yeah, sure. I think that was another part of it was because it was mentioned so often without any, like, reasoning to back it up. I'm like, all right, there's no way that's true. Mm, Okay. Fair enough. So, I don't know. Untrusting bastard. Maybe. That is a you problem. It's a distinct you problem as far as that goes. Yeah. Okay. Back to the friends. So. We got a bunch of weirdos, though, here within the mix. Not even we haven't even mentioned really Leon, of whom is not a friend. <laughs> and ultimately, I I have I have some qualms ultimately with the way <sighs> I wonder if it just makes sense to talk about chapter 39 and then to move back to this. Maybe. So Probably. let's let's do that. So chapter 39 is my problem with this story. Chapter 39 is the chapter in which Hoyd goes, OK, if you can't follow this, here's an explanation of everything that's going on. And I didn't like it. I like I understood and I got the need for why that chapter exists the way that it does. But it was a lot of telling to like get us there as opposed to really as opposed to everything else of which had been exposed like this blooming onion, you know, gradually picking at the layers. I don't know why he's blooming onion as the metaphor, but whatever. <laughs> you know, you could you could reach in and you could grab each layer of the fried Crossing's going to onion back tonight. Beast. <laughs> and you just keep you keep eating it layer by layer by layer until you get to the center and you got it. But it felt like we went from, you know, eating the layer of the blooming onion into suddenly there was a steak just plopped in the middle and the steak was good and tasty but i thought i was eating an onion (laughs) and so i expected onion this is the dumbest metaphor metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but you understand what i mean (laughs) i yeah i get what you mean i didn't have that dramatic of a response to it and i feel like it happens like this frequently enough when we're dealing with hoid that it kind of felt in character for him. Oh, I, I'm also not saying that I don't think it's in character for the record. I, I I, don't. My problem is more that the construction of this wasn't laid out so that we could have solved it really ahead of time. There was no way. Yeah. To like. That's true. To know the, the sort of steps and details there. That that was my issue with it is that. If anything, this book feels like it needs more pages so that we could have logically gotten there because we didn't see, for instance, there was no way to really make out the Groundhog Day problem. We never got a semblance that she was living through the exact same day outside of the fact that she was repeating the same rituals. It is towards the end. I don't remember if it's as far as 39, but it does mention the 19th day of her 19th year a few different times. Mm-hmm. but maybe that's right around here yeah i th- i think it is but because that's when they they put together that the date hasn't changed basically mm-hmm. but yeah 
kind of and then but the other side of that too is then explaining the shroud and like oh so the shroud is all the dead people oh there are 12 bubbles of it, it was just like a bridge too many too far as far as like just things dropped in this chapter as an explanation of what's going on and i think it has to be in order to make it a cosmere book to a certain I degree don't... like I, I disagree that that's like the the problem there is that like absolutely you want all of those explanations but deliver them textually like give us discovering them and finding them out not just being told them that's my issue is that mm-hmm. this chapter is like oh shit we need to make sure that all of this is in place so that it can happen yeah even and we using... need to make sure that you understand it so that it can happen and that's to me it's lazy but yeah, you, it would have been similar, but maybe better to use more conversations with design to like drop hints, even a great comparison. All the stuff with design works great. Everything with design, explaining things slowly or like feeding out realmatic theory to you, me and painter earlier. And then the conversation with Masika, like all of that stuff works well. It's the Hoyd drop explaining everything that does not work well. Mm-hmm. Okay. To me. That could also be a difference because at this point you were just strictly reading and not listening, right? Well, I did. I did also listen to it, but yeah, okay. I did switch over to reading it. I wonder, I wonder, because I only, I only got a chance to listen through it a single time. Yeah. I wonder if that would change if I was like looking at the text and really digesting it as completely as I could. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it was. And again, I love this book. It is a top five Cosmere novel for me. Chapter 39 is like the stain that doesn't make it better than Warbreaker. Like that is the the thing for me that kind of shatters it. Not completely, not wholly, but it really. When everything else is so well executed, it's a moment like that that stands out in stark contrast. Like mm-hmm. Tojin, the the that that like lifter joke, sure, cringe, don't care. Like it's still a great book, regardless <laughs> of what I feel about that. But that was like a bridge too far, which is what pushes it. I still like it more. I love Tress. This is not nearly as offensive to me <laughs> as the end of Tress is, though, because that kind of explains itself away with the multiversal stuff. So, I think yeah. Also, it just doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you. <laughs> yeah. Well, which is fine. But yeah. Yeah. It yeah, it just feels like it, it you could have you could have done that and I think my issue is is that he did do it through other characters in different moments and so it just feels like it's like, "Oh, here's the here's your I don't know, shit sandwich. Here's a lemon onion with a steak in the middle." Yeah. You say that like it's a bad thing, though. Like the steak tastes good. <laughs> I wasn't saying the steak was bad. I, I just was expecting an onion, <laughs> fried onion strings. But I, you know, I ordered an onion. I've never had a bloomin' onion. Oh wow! Well, that's a mistake. I feel like I should. Yeah, for what it's worth. Free free ads all over the place here. Texas Roadhouse has a blooming onion equivalent, and it's it's better. 
All right. Yes. So we're doing this one live, of course, for any of you listening. Zypris, one of our patrons, said in the chat here that the steak wasn't where you expected wanted. That is precisely it. It wasn't where I wanted it in the meal or where it should have been delivered. Right. And that's that's really my issue with it is I have no problem with the construction. I have a problem with the delivery. The the story itself so cool. Would I have rather learned about these little pocket bubbles that the Yoki Hijo have been trapped in to keep this machine alive in a way that felt natural? Yes, 110 percent. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It felt yeah. felt almost a little too hand wavy. It felt the most hand wavy that as far as explanations go, like not hand wavy, like, oh, don't, you know, it felt like, ah, I have to make sure that you know all of these things so that the end of the story makes sense. Which feels more like a it didn't have enough time in the the oven to like finish, not a not a problem with the plotting itself. So Yeah. I, I, I think and, it's maybe a symptom of this being a secret project and being on that tight timeline for turnaround. Another place where besides design, where things could have started to come out and prompt more questioning were those conversations with the attendants. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that conversations are happening could have allowed sort of the fabric of the reality to un- unravel a little bit more. Start seeing the cracks in the picturesque the machine, little, as it were. Yeah. Groundhog Day world. Yeah, that's kind of what I was expecting is more of the more of the programmatic breakdown, right? Especially once we begin to understand that it is a program that kind of runs in loop and in sequence. You know, that's a great example of where that should have shown to me or could have shown. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, so with that giant section out of the way, now we can talk about that part of the story, though. And I feel like now I, I've gotten that demon out, which is my only real complaint about this story. Leon, of whom I wanted to circle back on, is such a great character. There are there's a complex conversation to be had about the sort of truth of her character like is leon actually the evil woman that prevented her from being a yoki like a known yoki Hijo, like not a known knowing the world is a yoki Hijo. Do, do you know what i'm what i'm trying to poke at <clears throat> like yumi is yeah. sheltered intentionally because of the actions of leon. the the orthodoxy yeah. really Right. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Brain not firing on all cylinders. And that is the truth of it, right? Like she truly has been. I don't know. That's that's my issue. And that's my question, really, is, is it Leon or is this a design of the the machine? Right. And, and the system of Yoki Hijo to keep her in place and isolated, not asking any questions. You know what I mean? I think the intention is that it is Leon and it, this was her life because they do that like brain scan and see there's just a single day of like manipulated or deleted memories. So like she remembers like everything she remembers about Leon and about her life and about traveling and about being cloistered away and all of that is the first 19 years of her life and the next thousand are... Blank. Just one day. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll I'll accept that. I, I think that I was just the, seriously... I, I think that was the point of that like yeah. brain scan. 
explanation. Well, then then that makes some sense, but it leads into the the point of like the other Yoki Hijo that no more should have been able to break free easier, wouldn't they have? Probably. Because they could ask questions, right? Because it's not Yumi is the Yoki Hijo of whom, of course, is able to break out of this because of her particular talent. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of the explanation. They're not given time to really question anything because that day gets wiped every single night, right? Right. Yeah. And her supernatural ability to stag rocks <laughs> breaks the machine <laughs> over the course mm-hmm. of time. That's that's fair. You just I the same reason that's given to us could apply to any of the other Yokihijas, right? Like mm-hmm. because she's done the task repetitively so much over the thousand years, she's technically gained skill in the form of muscle memory, right? Like that's what is used as the explanation is effectively the muscle memory is what allows for her to do this so expertly. So part part of my cynical brain take on this is that, well, the other ones should have known more about the wider world and therefore should have had an easier time in theory. But, Um, you know, that doesn't make for the most interesting of stories. And like this is more of like a a meta talking point. Not really. This is not a story gripe at all. It's more of like a it was kind of like a head scratcher for me being like, well, if she's the cloistered one, you feel like she would be have a harder time. If the operating like reason for breaking the machine is raw talent and they've discussed how the orthodoxy average is only like it's slightly better than the others, like the two orthodoxy have like a slightly higher average number of spirits that they can conjure than the non-orthodox one. Not that much, but like, yeah, it was like six versus like nine. Vaguely, yeah, whatever it was, yeah. whatever the number was, well, it was a range, but you know, roughly it was like two to three more. Yeah, it'd be inevitable to happen probably to all of them, but she got there first, I think, is sure. Okay, maybe it. The other side of Leon that I wanted to mention is that obviously she's also the stable nightmare that Painter deals with, which makes her an interesting connecting thread mm-hmm. between the two. In a way, she also ends up being the sort of she is the thread between the two characters that really little C connects them and sort of their their quest on the whole. She's not the actual spirit that big C leads to their connection. Yeah, I don't know. I really liked the character of Leon. I also thought that it was a great example of reminded me immediately of like the Britney Spears conservator problem, right? Where it's like the person holds all this control when they really shouldn't over mm-hmm. someone's you know, well-being and they they don't have access to the things that they should have. Yeah. It, yeah. I I got the priests from Warbreaker felt very similar to that. Yes. Yes, for sure. But the priests are, are trying to figure something else out, which is interesting. There are so many comparisons, actually, that I have to Nalthus in this and Warbreaker on the whole that I, I definitely want to make mention of. Okay, cool. We'll we'll probably talk more about Leon as we get into the rest of this. What mm. do you think of design? I I have to ask this question because I have to. And Masika, let's let's focus on the pair of them for a while. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> design. Do they give the name of the being like of the species that she is? It it's not Chandra, right? But something similar, or is it Chandra of a different name? Well, no, 
It's not a Chondra. Not even a Chondra of a different name. It is It is definitely something related to the Stormlight Archive. It is... The, the thing that they explain is that she is a spirit-framed... She's got a spirit frame that Hoyd had created for her, and then there's a light weaving placed on top of it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> oh, she does explain that she's kind of the same as the spirits that mm-hmm. Yumi is conjuring. Yep. She's similar. But on vacation. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why she's like, don't use a formal title with me, you asshole. Yeah. That is something where I felt like there were holes in my understanding of what was going on. I don't think it necessarily took were. away from the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I did want to know more about her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I totally get that. Uh, on, on the whole, what did you think of her? Like, what was your, what was your end? I mean, Hot. knowing more, of course, is a thing. Hot. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> Hoyd did that apparently. So, you know, good work, Hoyd. Clap, clap. Well, well done, Hoyd. Funny, talented, driven. Noodle shop. Noodle shop. Wanted to learn how to make 17 different types of noodles and did. Made a lot of bad recipes, yeah. Yep. Apparently. There, There's... I don't know if there's some sort of magic to it or if there's just a lot of, like unquestioning people in this noodle shop but the fact that she's constantly talking about not being from this world and nobody nobody even questions it is something i guess is i i find that very interesting i don't think there's anything wrong with it because realistically i've i've told you this story i don't know that i've talked wider about it but i had a uncle a great uncle of whom spoke He's he was there was definitely some mental health issues, but he was well outside of the reach of the family because he lived in the middle of the desert in a tent by choice. But he believed that he was from another world and someone repeats that enough to you and you're like, OK, sure, dude. <laughs> OK, and, yeah, good point. You know, you're right. Yeah, right. Like, it's, right. it's kind of a simple <laughs> thing of like, well, no one's. Yeah. OK. All right. Design. I would love a number two uh, extra spicy. Yeah. All right. Like <laughs> coming up. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Um, it would be kind of unremarkable in its own way. It would be. It could be. You know. She's the crazy lady that runs the noodle stand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And she's she's just eccentric. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Yeah. I I really appreciated that. I thought it was very funny. The quote, by the way, is besides I'm on vacation. No worshiping the bits of God when they're on vacation. It's a rule I just made up. <laughs> <laughs> so good so mm-hmm. good it's design was very funny yeah it was it was very interesting of course that they had come here to kamashi the planet that we're on and this noodle shop the noodle pupil so i i really enjoyed design's inclusion here is this also There's, a new planet this is, is a brand new planet yep okay yep entirely new has not been mentioned before is the other planet also new Yes, Utol. That planet is Utol proper. Okay. This is the second... I guess we'll we'll hop over to that planet, World Hopper, and talk a little bit about that. What do you think of landing on the other planet and that sort of inclusion as a plot line? There's like 
half a chapter that talks about this, right? Yeah, ish. I can't recall all of the specifics. Like, I know the people are different. I know basically our takeaway from it that was important to me at the time was that this is clearly not Yumi's planet. Yes, that is the intended plot takeaway, right? Is that it's supposed to be proof that this is not Yumi's planet. And that is as an isolated book, that is the core point of that plot point. As a wider Cosmere moment it's very interesting of course that these rockets are basically tethered by Heon, which allows for them to move from place to place because we find Heon to be this sort of source of almost life it's almost like a protective essence which is really cool considering it's art and so like the fact that art feels life is brilliant Mm -hmm. i think there's a nice little meta conversation going on here that i i really appreciate from the shard of virtuosity and whatnot but yeah, so using the Heon powered rocket basically to make it to the other planet, tethered almost like a lifeline to Komashi. They land and they meet four armed beings of whom wider are known as the Shodel. And the we've only ever seen one other Shodel in all of the Cosmere, and it is at the end of the Lost Metal when Milan is in the boat going away mm. on the sea. Not the red eye reptilian nope. dude. Okay. Nope. Gotcha. Yeah. Hmm. So they're from here. Maybe. Or they found this place first. Fair point, actually. You I mean, they I guess from here was a little bit vaguer than than I because they're not they're not from there necessarily. They live here. But yes. Yeah, they populate right. the space. They they currently are there, yes. Which I found fascinating. I also really enjoyed the fact that throughout the story, I I had kind of I'd spoken with another patron about this, Ivana, of course, about this, and she was like, ah, "I don't I don't understand the inclusion." But the more that I've thought about it, the more that obviously, like the immediate plot relevance is that it's like, oh, they believe that they're on these other planets, and then if they can interact with each other, you know, they'll conjoin or they'll switch bodies back and Freaky Friday it in a way back to each other, and then also they can spend time together. Because they kind of they kind of come to like each other in the end, aw, aw, and yeah. So the fact that you you're looking at this planet through a telescope and you do see people there and like a civilization is like, whoa, okay, so there are people on this other planet they haven't made first contact with. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, Masika, Masika, just a b- bunch of bugs. This is just a bunch of bugs. <laughs> <laughs> A swarm of bugs in a human suit. Yep. <laughs> Thoughts? <laughs> I mean, that's pretty dope. Yeah. Is I, I don't think that there's anything that we've been exposed to so far that's worked like this in nope. the Cosmere, at least for me. Is this a Stormlight thing as well? Mm-hmm. All right. Most definitely. <laughs> cool. Can Salute can expand to the size of a planet was that it or how how big can masika's form envelop i know design mentions it i forget i love masika as a character for the record i think that she's great i really appreciate the sort of there's a trans or non-binary narrative inside of the character as well of like choosing the female form and like liking the female form because she is just kind of a shapeless blob which yeah. I, I like its casual inclusion 
not making it a big deal, of course. To that with Painter as well. Talking to design. And like there's the commentary on wearing the dresses and like your spirit is female. Mm. And that didn't really go anywhere else. I was thinking it might have gone in more of a pointed trans commentary direction. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that one of the things, I mean, you could, you, there, there are a number of different ways to talk about it and I wouldn't pin it on anything in particular, but I think that particularly for someone of whom is of the Mormon faith, Brandon is on the cutting edge comparatively of that and the sort of pushing for adoption of people or people inside of a, a faith that is otherwise pretty, pretty strictly conservative in a, right. in the, not necessarily in the political sense, but in the just in general social beliefs. So, right. No idea on the size, but I do know that she can obviously get very big. And she was a part of one of the hordes and she was afraid of the horde, which I can't. Yeah. What'd you think of that? So she was a part of a horde. She was not a horde in and of its like in of herself. She's not an individual horde. She's a part of a larger one. So we get this vague explanation of there being hordes, strains, and then swarms. Ah, um, yep. Okay. So I think she is a swarm. She is a swarm. Yep. Gotcha. It's and, interesting. And I knew something was up with her when they talk about her like quirks and being weird. Being weird. Bunny. I didn't think it was this. Mm-hmm. I... I had but, like a sort of cringy moment of like, God, just quintessential goth girl, really? Like, is that what we're doing? And then Brandon went and flipped the table on me and I went, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes way more sense. Good, good, mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fun character. I'm Very fun character. Looking forward to learning more about this species. You and me both, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh Fundamentally, I think this is more. There's more information in here than the other uh, four books that you haven't read. But Fair. contextless, right. I guess. So there's that. Cool. All right. So getting. I mean, all of these things are are like the elements of the story, right? We we mentioned this at the very top of the episode, but a lot of the fun of the story is uh, the fact that it does have all of these different threads, and it feels like it's character driven, not plot driven. But let's talk about the plot. Uh, for a minute and like the why that we're here it isn't until like chapter i want to say it's in the 20s like 25 or 26 in which we're introduced to the father machine which we find out to of course be the sort of big problem here actually it's not even the father machine we're introduced to a little tiny one a little tiny version of that which you know eventually then becomes the the father machine is the the sort of quote big bad quote what did you think of the father machine and the scholars i mean this this feels so directly and i don't know i don't know when this was written but well, we do this know feels when it was written. so pointedly commentary on ai and it's impending like destruction of art it does feel very pointed at this. I remember when you would, you would text me and you're like, I don't know, it kind of feels like the Industrial Revolution. And I was like, sort of, but I think you're just not far enough yet for the comparisons to have really roosted. Yeah, I hadn't um, gotten to the 
I, I had just been introduced to to the little machine. I the think. little yeah. machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I immediately I immediately saw that as well. We know that these were written in 2020, so we know that it predates the sort of advent of AI as we know the generative AI as we know it, which is crazy. But now, I'm sure there were rumblings of it. I'm I, I just well, yeah, of course. Chat GPT existed in 2020. I mean, it yeah. was it was a processor but it wasn't near a as prolific as like what it is now what it's capable of but it is such it is such to get back to the meat of the father machine such a good rendition of why you need art artists to actually make the thing right because as as mentioned it feels like it is just completely soulless on the other side it it generate it literally takes souls to fuel the machine to generate something that's shit Mm -hmm. it does the thing at a lower rate than the souls did it on their own and it it looks it it seems like art right away Mm -hmm. or it seems like what it's trying to produce but it's fucked up and yeah like fizzles and and crashes like the flyers not working properly Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. yeah there there's also something interesting so that's like that's the like cooler metaphor side of it right and i of course love this idea that we've got this inky shroud that is from when the father machine itself turned on and consumed all of those souls to then churn out you know to basically went haywire and ran itself into the ground over overdid it but there is a very direct and interesting connection, I think. The the machine is described a couple of times by Hoyd as awakened, right? And it, with a capital A. And awakened has a very specific meaning to us from Nalthus, from Warbreaker. And right. we know that awakened objects are those things that are infused with that power. I'm, I'm not certain that this means that breath in particular was used. Also... There was another note. Design brings up a comparison of the investiture that's in Yumi and compares it to an awakened, or sorry, not an awakened, a returned, which is like Light Song and all of the the people who died and then came back mm. with their like ten thousand breaths or whatever. But also says that she's closer to an Elantrian in power, which is interesting. Just as a sort of meta meta thingy. I don't know if it was just me fucking up reading, which mm-hmm. is possible, but I thought her hair changes colors at least once. But I think I'm thinking that it was black in a description of the painting or of the illustration. Oh, interesting. And then it's like blonde or red, like in the story itself. So I, I think I think I just fucked myself up in that sense and like remembering a description of the painting. <laughs> I'm not positive, but it, I think it's going to be hard to look for. Hmm? Yeah. 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 I think it was a description of the painting because I remember there, there's some details that don't really matter to you, but I believe that she's described as being lighter skin than a Vaden person, but in line with the same hair color and that being black or darker. It does talk about hair. her red hair at one point. You sure it's her red hair? Isn't it Akane's red hair? Mm. pretty sure Akane has red hair could be but uh, she's I mean, got black uh, hair too anyway yeah whatever whatever it was I was thinking like her hair was changing with her emotions like in Warbreaker and mm. that didn't the fact that nobody commented on it 
I'm like, ah, I'm wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a very it's very interesting. So back to the machine, though, it's described specifically as awakened, which begs the question of could he own be used to awaken things? Could could there be other ways to is is awakened potentially a state of objects not necessarily tied just to Nalthus? Could it be Heon energy that was able to do this? Unclear. Does it strictly but require souls? And regardless, now that's that's the part I want to talk about. Yeah. So this is very similar in description to another awakened object that we've seen in the Cosmere, where it takes souls and turns them into inky blackness, which is, of course, our favorite talking sword, Nightblood, does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> Which is, I, I believe that Hoyt also has a man, a line that's specific about the father machine. It's something along the lines of, "Oh yeah, 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 got it right here." I took it down as a note. Let this be a lesson. When you awaken a device like this, be very, very careful what commands you give it to follow. Mm-hmm. Capital A, capital C. And so, I, I think to me, in the sort of meta Cosmere narrative, this points to. A, awakening being very dangerous, but B, following almost the same parameters and conditions. So mm-hmm. there's also a great comparison to me, at the very least, with the scholars, the five Nalthian scholars and the Taurish scholars that awaken the device and the fact that they're the ones that are studying this. So part of me, part of me thinks that it's not actually just a Nalthus thing a Nalthus magic system, because that would have meant that someone would have had to brought the power there. Yeah. But not that that's not possible. Well, it's, it's all, all these magic systems have a common origin point, right? Yes. Yeah. So I, I don't think, and they're all connected by real matic theory, right? Which is the, the realm stuff that we've talked about. So I, I think having multiple systems that create a similar product, is believable oh yeah i'm I'm not saying it's unbelievable i'm just saying it's interesting but like oh for sure we've we've got a we've got a version we'll just say like a cousin maybe of nightblood that almost destroyed a world yeah um can nightblood conjure nightmares great question we don't know Hmm. that'd be pretty Nightblood is a giant question mark yeah how much would it suck to be like a sentient inky black thing that was the one that turned on the machine looking down forever. <laughs> like what the fuck did I just do? Yeah. Yeah. It definitely has. I, I agree with you. It definitely has that vibe to me that mm-hmm. like they're kind of trapped forever. And that sucks at the same time being witness to your like own creation is something that often... And again, another reason that I adore this story is because I think it hits thematically on so many different levels and keeps reiterating its central themes. As the creator watching your machine or your art run rampant in a bad way across society because you didn't cook it in the in the oven well enough before letting it go, it's also... also interesting. Yeah. You're mixing a lot of metaphors into that. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. I totally. <laughs> Again, it's early. I have had the full cup of coffee almost and in his brain, brain still brain still braining. You know, what's interesting about the story. I absolutely loved it. I only finished it like a week ago and 
a lot of the details have fallen out of my brain. Yeah, <laughs> out of the, same. Out of the backside. I didn't expect so many. And I think that's a symptom of consuming it so quickly because I liked it so much. Also on airplanes. <laughs> so yeah, that could, I that could had be the other side of the problem. A couple five-hour car rides. <laughs> yeah. So that's where most of it um, came in for me. So we've, we've talked a lot about a number of components here that I really like. I love the comparison of the the sort of AI villain is kind of fun. A machine run rampant, of course, and, and real art being the solution to that. But also, it's not necessarily just real art in quotes. It ends up being seeing people as they were, right? And understanding things as they are and then interpreting that and bringing that into the world, which is the coolest representation of what art really is fundamentally i i don't know man i i got a die happy boner from this story all the time <laughs> constantly i don't know story boner fiction story dick. boner crossland all right i don't know what to I, make I thought of that. fiction dick was worse but <laughs> <laughs> is it <laughs> it's the, my thick similar. dick got a story boner <laughs> i don't know it is. It, this is so I was going to make a comment out of this on <laughs> like us giving the explicit warning at the beginning of this this episode because of the the constraint that he put on himself of like not having any any swear words or anything similar to a swear word, and it's just inflection. Like that's a bold constraint to put on yourself in writing a story like this and then commenting on how difficult it is through hoid yeah great point actually the the lowly highly what did you think of that on the whole i think it's for the record for clarity i believe that it's similar to korean in the way that they actually don't have swear words it is the way that you say it and the tone in which it's delivered which is interesting it was distracting in audio Hmm. form sure and I don't feel like it was really necessary most of the time. There were a couple points where it really was, like commenting on the severity of the lowly inflection. But I feel like it would have made it would have been less distracti- distracting in text than it was in in audio form because it completely broke the flow of the sentence. Yeah, you you get it because of the way that they're saying it, right? Like that's one of the big things with the audiobook versus physically reading it is and again, I listened to like 30 chapters of the audiobook and then switched to the physical once I got home. But you're literally having someone read it to you so they can provide it the inflection that it needs right. to sound demeaning or positive. Mhm. Exactly. So, I don't think I I don't think I have a, a fair critique on it because i think i only listened to the book i think it's inclusion regardless of it being audio exclusive and whatnot i think it's i think it's a good inclusion because it does it also in a very indirect way points you to the performance and how kind of remarkable that is in and of itself right like the fact that they do such a good job taking the text and interpreting it and then giving it the tone naturally is in and of itself kind of impressive for the medium. Obviously they're performers. That's the point, but Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's unique. That's true. I enjoyed it, but I do think, like you said, it, it, 
interrupted the flow often, more often than necessary. Right. So we've kind of skipped over this a little bit, but obviously our narrator here is Hoyd. And we we talked about this with Tress, of course. With Tress, we're not sure who he's talking to necessarily. We think it might be someone from the Sixth of Dusk short story, of which I don't think you've read. Not that that matters, but it's a good one. You can read it whenever you want. But it feels very clear given... Well, it feels clear to me, given a lot of the analogies that are used and even the specificity of the planet, I believe, is used in the first couple of chapters, that he's speaking to someone from Roshar. Okay. From the Stormlight Archive. Gotcha. Yeah, that's something I hadn't considered because Tress is speaking more vaguely to anybody listening and whatever your world is like, Mm -hmm. this is different. Whereas this, I didn't pick up on having those specifics, but I wasn't really looking for them because I just made an assumption in my head that this was the same audience. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There there are some comparisons that he uses. Like I said, I used the Vaden one earlier as a comparison for, for skin color. And then he also compares a couple of things to Chulls, which are creatures. So... Mm-hmm. There were there were a handful of textual references that were really meant to provide context and are neat when you know them. But I was curious if you ever found those distracting. Nope. Or no questions. OK, cool. I mean, not not that anything, you know, again, what you don't know can sometimes be annoying. But I don't think I never thought like it was invasive in a way um, to the like story. There, there were points that like clearly I didn't know what he was talking about but mm-hmm. it's it's small enough and inconsequent inconsequential enough that it didn't bother me didn't stick in my head okay what do you think all right so we we talked a little bit about this earlier from Pedro's perspective obviously there's the big lie that he tells about joining the dream watch what did you think about going to and seeing the dream watch when he goes to go call them i mean it made a lot of things make sense And it also made a lot of things make less sense. So like the, the fact that they're never really, they never show up and they're never really called like, Oh, okay. They're just shitheads that get this appointed position because of who they, their family is. That makes sense. But the fact that, and and maybe it was so, okay, let me (laughs) readjust my, starting point here when he leaves every day to train the professors aren't saying anything and i'm curious if that's because they genuinely don't know who gets accepted into the dream watch and who doesn't or if saying anything about it would give away the the lie to a certain degree so they're kind of in a stalemate of like well He's clearly a very talented artist, and if it was a meritocracy, he would get in. But we can't say that. So, like, I think they think it is a merit. I think the professors think it is a meritocracy. Do they? Okay. I think so. I think that they're bought into the same line, because otherwise, how would they have... How wouldn't he have found out? You know what I mean? Like, if they knew... Mm -hmm. Who knows at the end... He goes and visits, and that's he goes how he and finds visits, it out. But yeah. oh, it's just it's the companion that kind of explains it. 
Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Who who ultimately explains that, you know, they're politicians, kids, and they're all of these other folks. And it's interesting because this is a society in which feels like it is post hard labor for the most part, right? Because the food is automatically grown by the he owned lines that's taken care of for them. The energy that powers the homes in this very technological city of which of course is also really cool and unique. And we haven't talked about it all is, is powered by the he owned lines. The he owned lines give life so that life can be used again to pursue art, which is again, is so fucking cool mm-hmm. <laughs> as a function. Yeah. But obviously, there's still there's still money. They still buy things like clothes. But and like it, it's interesting that this book defines a lot of jobs then as art, like owning a noodle shop and like the food itself is kind of art in that way. Obviously, the craft of the clothes is art. And that's it's it's almost like as much as possible of the society is pinned on it being art, not survival. Right. Yeah, but we're also not really exposed to any other. We're we're exposed to very few non-painters. Very true. Yeah, I'm I'm not suggesting, and that's because they're like their timeline is completely flipped. Like they're they're nocturnal, effectively. It just seems like, given some of the subtext that we get, you know, from like the actors that go through the Heon lines into the TV, which also what a cool visual of like mm-hmm. the lines becoming like pencil art that like bounces out of the electrical current. Yeah. So cool. Single line sort of outlines and etch a sketch drawings effectively of, mm-hmm. of what's going on in the two color tones. Yeah. So, so it, cool. it's simultaneously like it's technologically not quite advanced as not quite as advanced as our society is but it's close and kind of parallel i don't know yeah yeah i i think that this also points to in in vague ways and obviously we can make connections with timeline stuff but it seems as though there is maybe this feels maybe post mistborn era three given the the technological leaps and bounds and stuff that we see on the whole, Brandon said that the Cosmere basically advances at the same pace. So like most places advance, there are some there are some things that drag others behind and lead others forward. But I can't we can't talk about the specifics necessarily on this. Hmm. It's pretty cool. He owns neat. But the Dreamwatch, I this is maybe the only other thing in the story that I kind of didn't like. It felt a little hand waved for me comparatively. Of it being like, oh, well, they're just rich people that are appointed. And I was like, okay, but so much of this story has been has been about art and sort of the the proof and success of like being good at it, that this felt a little disingenuous by comparison of like so much of the story has been around the ability to create. Mm -hmm. And this was really just a reason as to why they didn't exist to make painter go. This is well, the most plot-focused like thing. It does make Painter not getting in make sense, and it validates right. oh, his, totally. his yeah. sort of origin in this. So I don't think it's entirely a hand wave, but no, I can see where I, you're coming from. Yeah, again, I I think it's well... it's It, it has its place in the story, 
I just didn't like the way that it was like, oh, you know, they aren't actually. I don't know. It took I mean, maybe, it took some of some of the just mysticism away a little bit. Yeah. If the Dreamwatch had shown up somewhere and they just yeah. kind of seem not that elite and start like getting things questioning that way before the reveal of why maybe that could have helped. Yeah. I think that that's really my issue is that it never showed up anywhere else. So it didn't really have, it didn't really feel like getting the explanation of the dream watch mattered. If that makes sense, like why they weren't there mattered. Mm-hmm. Zypress brings up a great point in chat that I really enjoy as well so i'm going to mention it here it makes sense in a way the dream watch is basically the high art community where rich people commission bs art to sell and donate to other rich people for tax deductions totally yeah and i i think that that is absolutely the case that brandon is making and i think that it is a good a good inclusion in that way uh, i just felt like it was tacked on maybe if that makes sense like a tacked on piece of the story that wasn't really explored yeah interesting it would have been cool to see that get fleshed out more. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's really all that I'm saying. Again, it's not it's not really a gripe, but it is like a oh, yeah, <laughs> kind of a thing. Okay. So, on the whole, of course, we get to the climax. What do you think of the sort of soul thing that was going on? The the final the actual results of chapter 39 and into our sort of end game. I don't know what I think of it. I was really kind of expecting these spirits to be separate beings, which they kind they they are, but they're also they're also the souls that are being trapped by the machine. Like how does this break down? How does this connection break down? Because they're not the people that were absorbed and turned into the inky blackness, but they are somehow connected to it. Like, this machine fucks everything. <laughs> the people and the spirits. Right? And mm-hmm. the, I, I guess it's a question of, are are you talking about the spirits as in, like, the spirits that are being conjured, or the spirits as in, like, the souls of the people that are remnants? Yeah, I guess I, I'm trying to just point to the whole thing, right? Like, in 39, we get a, again, massive massive explanation dump of a lot of stuff including the fact that the he own lines themselves come from the father machine harvesting the souls involuntarily and so like that's where the he own lines come from and that's where the shroud comes from is chewing those up the he own lines then also push back the shroud and prevent it from you know pushing forward and so that's where like this technological advancement of of the he own lines art the he hijo some of the hijo in the end volunteer to maintain the the he lines and like merge their spirits willingly because they see the benefit of art and and sort of the way that it they can provide so that people can make art which is interesting but just on the whole the the hijo there there are two different spirits right so there's the hijo of which are the splinters of virtuosity and then there are the spirits of the people of whom all have a tiny bit of hijo in them because they're invest everyone's invested to some degree even if it's very small like painter was so they're kind of one in the same they're not exactly one in the same the spirits that come to yumi are the real hijo the full hijo for the most part and the other ones that we see that are are painted the nightmares are basically invested people's souls which is again the reason that i think 39 does so much heavy lifting 
to make the story work without like doing the actual lift to make it all coalesce perfectly if that makes sense mm-hmm. like it it's, does we just had to run through an explanation of where i had to say spirit three different ways to to get us to <laughs> to talk about know. different things yeah mm-hmm. i think with some more time with it i'd be able to make more sense of it like it, it doesn't not make sense yet but it is still confusing and just a lot yeah i would say it's it's convoluted i liked the ending of the story on the whole of course um but i think again this was kind of a symptom of truly i i've got i've got some like a little bit of conspiracy crossland here i think that both this and tress and reasonably frugal wizard because i didn't like that one i think they all needed just another edit pass i think that we they were a little rushed to get them out the door for the kickstarter and i think they could have used just a little bit more of a touch in some places to make them mm-hmm. perfect stories i think but there's still some again the two are still some of the best writing i think that i've gotten from sanderson in a while so i'm not really down on it but they feel so close to incredible stories that I feel like maybe the pressure of getting them out for the Kickstarter one wasn't the best. Yeah, that's fair. Personally, I really like the entirety of the 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 soul portion of like the father machine and the way that that port that like essence goes and the idea of like painting them and representing them and realizing them as real people before they they fade out and they're finally released. I think it's really great as far as that goes. Getting the explanation, of course, that the human lines and the hijo are connected makes a ton of sense. You know, we were seeing the the hijo from Yumi's perspective be utilized into creating tools or to help solve the ills or problems of the people when they were summoned forth from the stacking. And so that all logically made sense. It's interesting to realize that that what she's doing in that trapped bubble, of course, is also providing the power for the Heon lines, basically doing the work of the farmer. So even the artist is trapped in the moment doing the menial work to ensure that they don't have to farm. But yeah. Yeah. I think it would have been like we, we got the understanding of the finding order in art being the attraction and that like an explanation of why painting didn't work for it. I think it would have been fun to explore some more creative outlets that like just more on that side, more on the side of like what else could we do for the nightmares? And I think that would have been a fun thing. Like seeing Mm -hmm. paint painter use like that sort of swinging pendulum painting style. And would that have, blended the two art styles enough to be like geometrically mathematical painting would that summon spirits in the same way that stacking stones does i don't know my brain was always going in directions like that throughout the story and we never really got to explore more of it yeah i i thought that it was interesting the painting was used as a meditation style you know what i mean or was considered meditation in the same way that you know Otherwise, Yumi was meditating throughout the story. And I agree with you. I was kind of waiting. Like, 
you were you were saying that I was like, man, it would have been cool to just see like somebody Jackson Pollocked and like that was their sort of style of like taking it down, which is kind of why I wanted like the Dreamwatch or I wanted to see someone that isn't just, you know, painter go after one of these things to get an impression of not just like, oh, it's just bamboo, you know, <laughs> in this one special rendering it would have been neat. In the end, we do kind of get that in that like final thing where everyone's painting in different ways, but it's it's also quick and you know quick and dirty. And it's just over. Yeah. Definitely agree. Okay, one thing we haven't talked about. Well, there's a lot of things that we haven't talked about, PJ. We haven't talked about the proliferation of nuclear weapons on the podcast in a while. We haven't talked about biological weapons. I don't know why we haven't talked about like the food crisis in South Africa. But we're not talking about any of those things. I... <laughs> <laughs> and we're still not. We're still not going to talk about them. There are a lot of things that we haven't talked about, but we specifically haven't spoken about the romance of this whole story, right? Which is so sweet and so cool. And like one of the big things between our pair of characters, of course, is that they're an unlikely match and then, you know, kind of have a longing sort of distance between the the pair of them. Mm -hmm. I totally thought Freaky Friday was the next week's movie night after Princess Bride right away <laughs> like all right so you watch freaky friday and you wanted to make a cosmere freaky friday let's do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's kind of funny fair mm -hmm. point that he's just taking all the inspiration from movie nights <laughs> <laughs> oh no it was um, reasonable as not as unreasonable first guess. Yeah, i get it i totally get it i i very much enjoyed the relationship between the two and I thought that the sort of the nature in which they fall for each other is great. The way that they when their spirits touch each other, like they immediately become connected and understand each other's thoughts. We get this sort of explanation from design that that's their spirit webs interacting, which is why they can like fully see each other, which is interesting. I was the so waiting for a like just a time when they like embrace and hug and like push past the discomfort of the initial touching and like merge into almost like the what shadow of Mordor sort of spirit merging. Yeah. I was, I was waiting for something like that to happen too, but no such luck. We, we kind of get that when they get comfortable with it where they aren't like, cause it, for a long time, it's like shock when they when they touch each other and they're, you know, they they quickly pull away. And then I think the final time that they do that is when, you know, they ultimately interact. Mm -hmm. And they kind of stick there for a second. There was an interesting note, too, by design that I want to bring up in kind of the larger context of the Cosmere again in relation to Yumi, saying that she is incredibly spiritually invested, which is unique and a first yeah didn't stick in my mind because i didn't think that there was other i thought spiritually invested was the whole thing kind of right like mm -hmm. our our understanding we get this from secret history so i don't feel like i'm really you know reaching into anything else but our understanding is that you burn so three realms right physical cognitive spiritual you burn things in the physical realm and that reaches into the spiritual realm, I believe. And like you're basically nabbing power from the spiritual realm. Okay. 
when you burn a metal, for instance. But that's about the extent of what we know. So it's interesting that she personally is very spiritually invested, which yeah. is different because generally people are cognitively invested. They obviously have a spiritual manifestation, but we don't really see a whole lot into the spiritual realm. And I kind of wanted a little bit more on that from this we story. We do get the comment from Hoyd, like the little aside about her perception really coming into focus and her not even burning tin in that instance. So yes, which is interesting. something similar going on physically or right. spiritually. So yeah, think, thinking about and going into Mistborn for just a second to that comment, the reason that tin works the way that it does, right, is when you go into the mist, people can't see through it. And that is a version of preservation's essence that's spread out all over the world, right? So when you burn tin, you become spiritually aligned with the mist so you can see through it. That's how tin works, right? On a very high level. So in a similar way, because she's invested heavily in the spiritual realm, she can see through it without burning it because she is of the same essence, which is our first big hint that something is messed up with the shroud. Right. And that there's some alignment there. Yeah. Hmm. But it comes at like chapter, I don't know, 37. So like we, you know, would have been yeah. nicer to have that hint earlier. <laughs> would have been. Um, yeah. Did we get a full uh, breakdown of why they're always in Yumi's body? Physically, outwardly. Is it because she's so much more invested? I think so. I think that's what design says. It, it feels like it's something in that realm of of her being the more powerful spirit and so she also describes it as in some ways similar to a light weaving because her spirit is basically on top of his body which okay. we can then understand at that point in the story that that's actually not it's not that they're physically body swapping right she's actually a spirit she was never corporate for the entire story mm -hmm. so in painter flips he's the one of whom is taking a spiritual form and is mm -hmm. in her presence and then she's kind of floating around as the as a spirit yeah but she is corporeal in his world yes but on top of his body right right yep 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 so that's where that's where it gets complicated and that was it Looking back, that is maybe a decent hint, but we didn't know the rules enough to know that that was it, that that's why that was going on. What are the rules? What are the rules? But we do, 39 is rules, the chapter. Yep. Uh, <laughs> okay. Generally, they're doled out. But yeah, anyway, like it. So getting to the ending specifically, right? We we see all the painters. They paint all these souls. The shroud dissipates. The machine breaks from the stone stacking that Yumi's doing on the other side as her spirit is going through and breaks it with these enormous, massive stacks that tumble and rise. And the, the picture dude of that in the book is so good. All of the all of the artwork in this book outclasses the other two by miles. I'm so sorry. It's the best. Some of the best art I've seen in a book, period. But yeah, what'd you make of the the end itself? It's I mean, it's funny to break a machine with stacking stones, right? Like that mm -hmm. if you really like pull apart the connective tissue and the 
the context of it. She she fried a machine because she's so good at stacking rocks. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. But bringing in that connective tissue and context and everything like it makes sense and it's it's cool to see Mm -hmm. um i i loved the army of painters coming through and wreaking havoc on those nightmares that aren't really nightmares but nice nice people that just can't do anything else yeah it was very sad (laughs) it was sad (laughs) (laughs) just poor Poor people that got sucked into a machine and spat out as void. Mm-hmm. Don't quite understand the motivation for presenting as nightmares. I don't think that's their choice. I think that is just the depleted essence seeking investment, right? So like okay. the way that the way that my brain worked it out is they have their investiture removed and so they are looking to repair their spirit web with that investiture so they're looking to fix themselves by getting other people's okay and that is a, a lot fault of, of the machine in that imagery yeah. mm-hmm. for some reason maybe that's a commentary on the driven hunger of him yeah or something i think i think it fits it also fits the vibe of this being very asian inspired right like mm-hmm. Okay. Between Korea and Japan for inspirations. So obviously we we go through this whole segment. They paint away all the people. We see Painter, for instance, realizes the realizes Leon as a person because he knows and understands her, as well as the two attendants who were there with Yumi the whole time. And then of course the the final one to dissolve is not not ultimately a nightmare, but Yumi ultimately fades away in in the moment and disappears and it's a it was a very sad moment what what did you think about the decision to allow for painter to paint her into reality willingly in the very <sighs> end in the epilogue to bring her back to life i felt like it i mean it did cut down the the whole point that like hoyd gets into at the beginning of that epilogue like it doesn't have to be a happy ending at uh, every single story. I'm fine with it. It's okay. I didn't love it, but it, I ultimately don't care that much. I, I think it was a sweet ending, right? Like it's a sweet ending to have them get together and for that to work out in mm-hmm. the end of the story. I do kind of wish that epilogue wasn't there in the way that it was. I kind of wish that she lived on in like in spirit quote through him and having changed him right and having changed society on the whole mm-hmm. but i certainly didn't mind the the kiss is very nice the kiss is very cool it's that's very true. nice that they finally get to be with each other like that's that's cool but man i can't i can't help but think that without that epilogue it would have hit just so hard um because it did hit hard it i did. was yeah i was heartbroken um, when all of a sudden the book was over and she was gone, right? Mm-hmm. And then the epilogue like rewound that just a little bit. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. I understand. But mm-hmm. are there are there greater implications to like that being 
a possibility for a thousand year old spirit to just decide to do that yeah cognitive shadow coming back to be a real person absolutely there are massive implications and giant mm-hmm. fucking question marks to me about what that actually implies like so is we've this... got some massive question of how kelsier came to be back in reality right like how did his but he's a he's kind of a little bit of a different case anyway but yeah uh, yeah so like i i don't think this is an unintended consequence of creating a sweet ending for a story i think that this is going to be a like an important precedence set going forward yeah and i mean the the other side of this too we mentioned it earlier but the returned are fairly similar because they're also cognitive shadows or they were kind of so they're they're also kind of cognitive shadows Mm -hmm. so i mean it's not that even the precedents need to be made needed to be made here because it has been made before i don't know i i was just like thinking about it from the perspective of the story i was like you could have ended this and made this the most heart-wrenching book you've one of the most heart-wrenching books you've written Mm -hmm. by letting that ending sit and then just yoinked it back to just kidding yeah well it's it's still good i still really like Mm -hmm. this book but i can't help I can't help but imagine the world in which my brain would have totally overlooked chapter 39 as a fault if she would have just been dead and been like top top Sanderson book like ends with heartbreak. Holy shit. Like, but not every story needs to end that way. So I also appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, it was overall stamp of a good book. Good book. Nine and a half out of ten. Yeah, (laughs) it's really loved it. I really I, I hope that that came through over the course of the episode really really liked it the true final thing to talk about with the book is the extra epilogue the second epilogue also epilogue what however i forget how it's another epilogue another epilogue yeah that's what it is (laughs) with with hoyd and with design leaving the planet off to new unknowns off to go get his brain fucked once again to tell another story like Mm -hmm. how is he constantly getting trapped like this (laughs) yeah yeah also one of my favorite paintings in the whole thing comes from that epilogue where it shows hoyd as a as a coat rack and Mm -hmm. it kind of looks like he's wearing a crown because he's got the the top of the coat rack horns oh so good there's Um, the, the okay most of the illustration descriptions are pretty like mm-hmm. standard and like declarative of what's going on in the painting. Mm-hmm. This is the only one where it's clear that Hoyd is describing the painting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, why not another coat or another set of hooks on a hand or whatever yeah. it is. Like, yeah, there's, there's an air of like, uh, <laughs> it, okay. I'm describing myself. <laughs> It's very funny because it's also not in the text, right? Like that is, it's yeah. rare that you have something that's physically different in audio form like that. And to have the painting descriptions in general adds that extra layer of, of humor onto the story that definitely appreciated. Right. Yeah. I read this. I finished this book right before we recorded D&D on what, Thursday this last week, Wednesday, like whatever, whenever it was. And I remember just giggling at that, that final little end being great. But they're often new and exciting places and adventures and 
He's now unfrozen. He mentions a couple of things like his soul being messed with and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's a very good point to to that point that you had mentioned, Zyprius. It does. Sucks that the audio version doesn't have a bonus PDF with all the images. I, I have to think that that's a limitation of Spotify at the moment because Audible, and again, I very much support Brandon's path here about not going Audible, but the Audible version of things generally has that like little package of PDF. I have no idea on Google Play Audio, though. Yeah, so good luck. But generally speaking, if there's like a map or something like that, Audible will include it in a PDF at the very top of the of the stacks so that you can tap. For instance, when I was reading the entirety of the Stormlight Archive, there was a there was, there were PDFs interspersed that you could tap on to see when it was relevant so we do get the ebook pdf yeah the ebook has it but yeah. that's because we got the you know the edition that had those things shared oh Imagining... okay. so that, do- that doesn't just come with the audiobook correct unless okay. you buy so the other thing is is that the digital the bundles that sanderson offers directly from the website you can redeem a number of places those bundles generally include all of the versions um of it so you would get a kindle plus costs a little bit more i think i think it's generally 20 bucks versus 15 okay gotcha i just his goal all came together as as a general concept i i actually really appreciate what dragon steel is trying to do is they want it to be if you buy a book you get all of the copies of the book so you can consume it in whatever way you'd like and they're they're pushing for that and that's why these four books are really interesting in the way that they've released them because you can you can get all of those the ebook is just included if you get any of the physical versions so mm-hmm. man that this premium hardcover is so gorgeous i totally if there's any book to buy of the set it is this one so far yeah yeah i'm so excited to see it i think i'll get it tomorrow i'm excited excited for that true true final note of course is on the acknowledgements we mentioned this of course final fantasy 10 being an inspiration got him the thing that i didn't know as an inspiration was the the anime movie your name so after finishing this book, he had mentioned your name being an inspiration. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to watch that. So I did watch it over this weekend. You got to watch it, PJ. It's so damn good. All right. It's five dollars on Apple to buy. Okay. And I, I, I did buy both the subbed and the dubbed version. I compared the first 10 minutes. I think the dub is incredible. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get catching the Your Name inspiration if you'd seen it. I had not. So I didn't, you know, very similar to PJ, not knowing that it was Final Fantasy X, you know. Mm-hmm. How would you know if you if you knew? And that yeah. gave me so much confidence that, you know, I can pretty much write whatever I'd like and steal whoever's ideas and no one's going to call me out on it ever. That's what I found <laughs> out from this conversation. Just kidding. <laughs> That's pretty funny. There's also the the acknowledgement of an anime that an anime that he read or and oh yeah Hikuro no no go or something no like there that. was one that he just doesn't remember the name of it that mm-hmm. he read in college Hikaro no go yeah and he he titles it or he credits it as that one 
or something like he he just can't remember the name of it of the uh astronauts that fall in love through notes left on their shared bunk yeah there's there's definitely that the other one that he does cite was hikaru no go mm-hmm. by yumi hota but yeah totally it it's so good and also the fact that this is his favorite of the secret projects is cool and the fact that he said that this is one of his favorite books that he's written because he doesn't rank his children is also cool i, I think yeah. that that registers too i think it feels like the most personal story outside maybe warbreaker right yeah i i definitely felt similarly about warbreaker throughout reading this one so mm-hmm. yeah i think i think my preference is still to warbreaker i've also been sitting with that story longer so like i you know maybe maybe if this one sits with me longer but mm-hmm. regardless you know this is a this is an easy top five and a definite recommend. I think that like Sanderson had kind of intended, the the two of these books are both great entry points for people to pick up and go to the Cosmere without Absolutely. needing anything. You could you can totally consume this book without even knowing what the Stormlight Archive is, as PJ has proven. Yep. Because <laughs> there there is an entire 40 minute episode about talking about all the Stormlight stuff, but you know, we're not gonna do that. We won't. Maybe maybe later. Maybe, maybe this will come up in our uh, Stormlight coverage. We will likely do, you know, in, in these sort of vagaries of plans, it will be fun at some point to maybe do like an, a retrospective episode on all the, on all the connections mm-hmm. once you have them all and just kind right. of rattle off stuff. So sure. it might kind of naturally happen during that coverage, but we'll see we're gonna we got i gotta we gotta test a a thing to see if we can do it the way that i want and then we'll see if it works so maybe as soon as next year but Mm. i hope all right so that brings us to what we're going to be doing next we're having a little bit of change on the short pour schedule just because my summer is absolutely fucked and a little bit busier than i had anticipated at the beginning of the year when we laid out the schedule so we're going to put off the poppy war for a little bit but we do have a couple of private party sponsored episodes a pair of them talking about daisy jones and the six so we're going to be putting those out come august and september we still have to record the second one of course and the first one is available right now to patrons at the bartender tier plus spoiler we really like it it's a really good time can't wait to talk about the second one at some Mm -hmm. point here following that kind of resuming with the schedule we're going to read salem's lot I believe that episode was originally scheduled for December to be released. We'll put it out in November. So if you're looking to follow along with the reads for the short pours, November, we'll pick that up. And Secret Project 4 will be out in October. So we will be talking about that then. Perfect. Is it October or September that it comes out? This one came out July. Yeah, so it's got to be October. Never mind. Um, so that's the plan. Sounds what good will come me. in December? Something. I don't know. <laughs> we'll figure that out. Uh, we'll we'll nail down another schedule and try to. Yeah. I'll I'll post that. an update to the to the schedule. So, thank you so much for listening to the show. Be sure to check us out on social media. You can. We've talked about how fucked our schedules are. Yeah, it's. You'll be able to find how fucked our schedules are on our social media uh, accounts. Do we? It's just through the words and whiskey one, right? Yeah. Yeah, that'll predominantly yeah. be through Words so of Whiskey. So Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Reddit. 
words and whiskey show at gmail.com patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey where you can get early access to a bunch of these episodes along with other stuff that we have yet to record <laughs> pj symposium of media and whimsy stuff, yeah but we're getting there we're getting there yes. we have plans yeah. We do finally have plans to to catch up the way that we wanted to. So very excited. Beyond that, again, next month, Daisy Jones and the Six. Otherwise, the next read will be Secret Project 4 and then Salem's Lot. So if you're looking to prep and follow along, those are the books that we're going to be reading. So cool. All right. See you guys later. Bye. Bye.